0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, October 9th, 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. When the President of the United States got access to promising experimental treatments following his revelation that he too had contracted COVID-19, well, it seemed at least a little unfair that more people can't access the same potentially life-saving treatments. Cato's Jeff Singer discusses his upcoming paper detailing why the FDA's immense power to make the rules for who can prescribe what to whom... Ought to be scrapped entirely. When the president was at Walter Reed, it became pretty clear early on that he was going to have access to a lot of things that no other American would would really have access to. Uh, that included some experimental treatments not yet approved by uh, the FDA. And I guess it fell a little flat when the the, the president uh, uh, came back to the White House and released this video and said, "Hey, we have all this great health care. We have." Uh, great drugs, great treatments. Uh, don't let this dominate your life. And I thought, well, yeah, everybody should be taking precautions, but you have access to health care that no one else does.
1: That's true. And a lot of that has to do with our uh, FDA regulations. So as we write about in our, uh, Michael Cannon and I write about it in our upcoming white paper called Drug Reformation, since 1951, uh, regardless of whether a, a, a drug works or not, if uh, you cannot get access to a safe drug without the FDA deciding whether or not you need to get a permission slip from another mm-hmm. licensed healthcare practitioner. So uh, there are certain... Exceptions. Now, in the case of uh, President Trump, uh, the FDA allowed him, even though it's not approved, the FDA allowed him under a compassionate use exception to get access to monoclonal antibody, which is very promising and might actually uh, be very effective in fighting COVID because uh, you don't even have to pool plasma from convalescing people. You could basically manufacture synthetic antibody. But um, if uh, another person wanted to get that, that's not been approved. To even to be prescribed by the FDA yet, the FDA uh, stands in the way of our right to self-medicate, and uh, that's what we talk about in a great deal in our white paper.
0: So, when did this come about? When did the FDA get this authority, and w- and what what led up to
1: it? Well, originally, uh, the FDA, the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act of 1938, was charged with just making sure that any new product that comes onto the market they deem it to be safe. Um, and in fact, the uh, authors of the law s- actually s- said in, in their testimony and in, in, in the congressional record that nothing in this law is intended to infringe upon the people's right to self-medicate. It's just to allow them to be safer when they self-medicate. Um, and up until 1951, under the under that regime,, uh, it was really up to the drug maker as to whether or not they wanted to require uh, a particular drug that they made to be just available to the to a person wanting to buy it or available only if they could present a prescription. That was a a decision made by the manufacturer. Sometimes the manufacturer may can, may have come to the conclusion that, you know this drug is complicated to use. Uh, we can be liable if there's a problem, so they would they would deliver it to the pharmacies and would say, for, "Can only be sold to people with a, a prescription from a doctor." Well, that was, of course, a, you know, a proprietary decision, but that was a decision made by the drug company um, in those days, um, and this wouldn't happen today with modern technology. Sometimes, drug company A would require a prescription for its product, and drug company B. Which would make the uh, sim uh, that basically identical product wouldn't require a prescription, and the pharmacist would get confused and accidentally sell a, a, a drug to a, a customer that they really weren't allowed to without a prescription. So, uh, Senator at the time Hubert Humphrey, who later became Vice President, and Congressman Carl Durham, both were pharmacists before they got into politics. And they were the go-to people for the pharmacy lobby and they complained to them. And the Durham Humphrey amendments to the Food, Drug and Cosmetic Act were passed in 1951, which basically said, okay, from this point forward, we're taking this decision-making out of the, the private sector, out of the marketplace, and we're placing it in the hands of the FDA. So the FDA will decide what drugs will be available to consumers over the counter and what drugs will only be available if they get a prescription from a healthcare practitioner licensed by the state. And at that point, the right to self-medicate was taken away because uh, how many of us, myself included, well, I'll give you an example, as a doctor, sometimes I almost, I feel embarrassed when I'll be seeing a post-operative patient to let's say remove stitches from surgery. And the patient will say to me, could you do me a favor while I'm here? I know this isn't your field, but I'm getting another ear infection and amoxicillin always works, and I can't afford to take more time off to go to my PCP and get the prescription for amoxicillin, which I know I'm going to get. Could you prescribe it for me? And I say, sure. And while I'm doing it, I'm thinking to myself, this is a shame that an an adult has to ask another adult for permission to medicate himself, and and it just shouldn't be. There's something wrong with this. Now, obviously, most rational people are going to consult some expert before they put some medication into their body uh, that they're not familiar with, and it doesn't necessarily have to be a physician, it could be a pharmacist. But uh, since 1951, it's taken the decision out of the private sector. Another downside of that is it makes everything political. So, for example, uh, despite the fact that the morning after pill or plan B, uh, it was recommended To the FDA by a panel in 1999 that it be made over the counter, it took 14 years for the FDA to make it over the counter to uh, women of all ages. Uh, Actually, the uh, advocates for this had to take it to court, and it it didn't matter. The FDA advisory panel of experts said it's fine to be over the counter, but politics stood in the way. In fact, President Obama said we don't want women to be able to to access. you know, comic books and bubblegum or something to that effect, along with morning after pills when they're checking out of the cash register. So this paternalistic uh, and politicized decision-making has been around. It, that's what happens once the, the decision is put into the hands of a government agency. We're one of, uh, there are 106 countries where women can get birth control pills over the counter, yet you can't in this country. You have to have a prescription. And there we, you know countless examples like that.
0: What you propose is pretty radical, but if you accept the notion that we as individuals are ultimately in charge of making decisions for ourselves, possibly in consultation with a, a medical professional, um, it makes sense. So you're proposing eliminating that authority for the FDA.
1: Right. We propose that the Durham Humphrey amendments be repealed and it go back to allowing a private sector arrangements. Now, there won't be a lot changing overnight because since 1951, we've developed a lot more pharmaceuticals, a lot of them much more complicated. So in the overwhelming majority of cases, we could expect that manufacturers, particularly when we're dealing with things like chemotherapeutic agents or complex cardiac agents, they're going to still require uh, a prescription. If uh, the pharmacist to, to get a prescription from a, a practitioner before being able to, to to sell it to them, but there's a whole lot of other drugs that would be moved over the counter. And what's interesting, most countries have copied our FDA model, but even with that, there's not a lot of consistency. In Canada and Singapore and Tanzania, you could buy insulin over the counter. In the United States you can there's only two type most people don't know this but there are two types of insulin that you can get over the counter these were insulins that were already over the counter available prior to the food drug and cosmetic act so they've been grandfathered that's uh, Novalin and humulin or nph and regular insulin so people could still buy just those over the counter and it's very inexpensive because when it's over the counter it's much cheaper but in canada you could walk into a pharmacy and buy uh, insulin over the counter now, uh, in in uh, several European countries, naloxone is over-the-counter, France, Italy, Australia. In England, you can get statin drugs over-the-counter. You could also get asthma inhalers over-the-counter in many European countries, and you can't hear. There's, we talk about these differences, we go over this in our paper. Um, So, you know, are we to think that in those countries, they're more careless than we are by allowing it to be over-the-counter? And there's another category that exists in many of those other countries that doesn't exist in our country, but would be available to pharmaceutical companies as a sort of a midway thing. So in many countries, they have a a category that's called pharmacist only, or sort of behind the counter, which means that uh, even though you don't need a prescription, you have to go up to the pharmacist and ask for it. And then you have a professional who knows, in most cases, more about the drug than physicians do, who is a buffer. So for example, in Canada, uh, you could walk up to a Canadian pharmacist and say, I'd like to buy XYZ brand of insulin product. And a pharmacist could say to you, uh, do you have diabetes? And if you said something like, well, I'm pretty sure I do because my friend has it and, and I seem to have all the symptoms he does and he uses this. That's why I wanted to get it. The pharmacist could say to you, Well, you know what, why don't you come back and ask me for that after you've seen somebody about that? I don't feel like selling it to you. So that's that's another a category. Uh pharmacist only are behind the counter. And that exists in a lot of for a lot of drugs in Europe that are prescription only in the United States. So if pharmac- if we were to go back to letting pharmaceutical companies make the decision. And they come up with a product where they're thinking, well, this isn't so complicated that we need to make somebody waste the time and expense of going to a doctor's office to get a prescription. But we're a little nervous about just kind of making it widely available. We want some sort of person who knows about this to kind of screen for it. So we're going to stipulate when we supply the pharmacies that this has to be behind the counter and the pharmacist has to Be the one to dispense it to the customer, so that's another option. Uh, But by doing this, not only will allow uh, we respect everyone's right to self-medicate, but allow much more, uh, much more rapid change and adjustment. It it took, you know, I think, twenty years for ibuprofen to become over the counter in this country when it was already over the counter in Europe, for example. So uh, instead of having everything become a political decision. It becomes a market decision. And and the manufacturers base their decisions on their—they don't want to get sued. They don't want mal, mal, liability suits. And they also don't want their reputation to go up in smoke.
0: And technologically, it's a lot easier now to uh, not get drugs confused uh, sure. by pharmacists than it would have been in the 40s and 50s. All right?
1: They didn't have barcodes in those days. So, yeah, exactly.
0: What's the upside for— consumers, I can imagine that uh, there will be some misuse of uh, drugs that otherwise would be prescription only.
1: Well, evidence shows actually that when consumers are purchasing their own products over the counter, they seem to be more careful than when they get a prescription filled given to them by a practitioner. Uh, The very famous sulfanilamide scandal that led to the passage of the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. Okay, what that's about? In 1938, the new antibiotic sulfanilamide was made into an elixir form so that children could take it, and there were a whole bunch of deaths because the uh, ingredient used to make uh, to, to dissolve the sulfanilamide in turned to be turned out to be diethylene glycol, which is related to antifreeze and is a poison. And and after several deaths, the Food Drug and Cosmetic Act was then uh, passed in reaction to that. Well, um, almost every case where the person took and died of sulfanilamide was a prescri- it was a prescribed to them by a doctor. In fact, there were cases that we documented in our paper where, despite the fact that the child was getting, seemed to be getting sicker and sicker with the sulfanilamide, the doctor said, "Keep going, give them give more sulfanilamide." So. We, there's a tendency for people to uh, suspend their own uh, critical thinking and just place trust in the practitioner because, after all, they're experts. And um, when people on their own are making decisions, they tend to be very discriminating. They uh, they comparison shop. They ask a lot of questions. Uh, when it comes to birth control pills, a very famous study was done by the University of Washington about 10 years ago where they asked women to fill out a questionnaire to de- So and and determine whether they think they are a good candidate for birth control pills. And they were in agreement uh, 90% of the time with OBGYN specialists. The 10% of the time that they weren't in agreement with them is because they were overly conservative and they thought they were not good candidates. And the OBGYN specialists thought, no, that's okay. You could take it. So there's a tendency for when we're making our own decisions for ourselves to be much more careful. And and then when you think about it, you know, we sell over-the-counter acetaminophen. A 12-year-old can walk into any drugstore and buy a lethal dose of acetaminophen, no problem. So, uh, and they don't seem to do that, but the point is we need to, uh, to trust people to use their judgment. Besides that, that's their right. What's really ironic is uh, Jessica Flanagan wrote a book all about the right to self-medicate called Pharmaceutical Freedom. And in that book, she pointed out that back in the colonial times, the right to self-medicate was so fundamentally understood that Thomas Jefferson used that as an illustration when he's trying to explain to an audience why the right to free speech was so important. He said, the right to free speech is as sacred as the right to self-medicate. That was to make an example to his audience. Nowadays, we have to to say the right to self-medicate is as sacred as the right to free speech, which is kind of ironic how we've just turned things around. And it's only since around 1950. Up until 1950, it was understood that that you have the right to self-medicate.
0: What changes with th- what's known as right to try uh, if this authority from the FDA goes away? Is that no longer an issue?
1: Well, it No, if the the authority from the FDA goes away, the FDA still has to approve the drug for marketing. So under our current regime, the FDA would still have to say whether the drug can be sold. But we would be taking away the FDA's authority to decide whether that will be sold over the counter or by prescription only or by pharmacist only for that matter. So only taking away that authority. But under right to try, that gives you the right to go to a, drug company that's developing a drug that's still going through clinical trials and has not yet been FDA approved, but has very promising results. In fact, it's already passed phase one, which means it is safe. So you know it's safe. You just don't know whether or not it works. And you can say, well, I want to try it on me because I have nothing to lose. And this wouldn't impact that.
0: Dr. Jeff Singer is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.